Poor people do not spend time with rich people and vice versa in this country. It's also true in almost every other country. And as a consequence, they don't have the ability to learn from each other. They don't have ability to have the same story, to develop the same pictures about life. And if I had to point to one thing that you would want to change in this country, that would be it. 30 years ago, it was different. We were much more mixed. Just something to think about. Perhaps the most interesting thing about this statement is the person making it. No, it's not an aspiring presidential candidate or a rabble-rousing pundit. It is, in fact, a scientist. One who's come to this conclusion after decades of research. This is Alex Pentland, a computer scientist who directs the Connection Science and Human Dynamics Labs at MIT, where he helped create that institution's groundbreaking media lab back in the 80s. A serial entrepreneur who's launched over a dozen companies, Penland has been called one of the seven most powerful data scientists in the world by Forbes magazine. And now he's facing down what he considers to be one of the most profound issues of our time. We have broken our society into different chunks that don't talk to each other. A lot of that's around income, some of it's around geography. So people in one income level basically have a completely different story about the world than people who are at another income level. And it's not that one is right or one is wrong, it's their experiences are completely different and their sense of what direction to go is of course, as a consequence, very different. Same is true for geography. If you live in what people call the flyover states, you have an anger about things that's very different than if you live on the East Coast. You may have anger there also, but it's about completely different things. At his recent Shannon Luminary Lecture at Nokia Bell Labs, Pentland laid out a vision for something he calls human AI. And along the way, he explains why org charts are useless, why where you buy your morning coffee matters, and, most importantly, how we can all reclaim a bit of our precious digital privacy. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. This is episode 16, Better Data Through Diversity. In introducing Professor Pentland, or Sandy as his friends call him, Bell Labs president Marcus Weldon notes just how prescient he's been. In 1982, which is before that row was born, (laughs) not before you were born, (laughs) he did a PhD in AI and psychology at MIT. That officially makes him 36 years ahead of his time. Right, because if there's one thing we need to work on still now, and perhaps it's, it's, it's most relevant now, is the combination of AI and what it means for mankind's psychology and even machine psychology. AI and psychology in 1982. Indeed, Pentland begins by presenting an intriguing photograph from 1995, where he's seated outside with three of his students, some of whom are wearing vaguely steampunk spectacles. That's me over there with the uh, famous sandals. People comment on my toes all the time. I'm not sure why. But at that point, there were no wireless networks. There were no cell phones. But it was clear that that sort of thing was going to happen. And so what I got a bunch of students to solder together little PCs with motorcycle batteries and little lasers that shot things in their eyeballs. And we tried to say, what is the future going to look like? 
You know, flat screen, battery, radio, fingerprint, that whole business, right? Things that look like Google Glass, and in fact, the student that did that went on to be technical lead for Google Glass. Impressive prognostication for sure. But it's not merely the devices they foresaw that makes this work notable. The part that was really amazing was we now, for the first time in human history, had millisecond by millisecond data about 20 people who worked together for almost two years. We knew where they went, when they talked to each other, what they looked at, what they did, how they moved. And we've always had, you know, height measurements, IQ measurements, test scores, things like that, financial records. But we couldn't actually see how people worked together. And it caught fire. Something on the order of 400 academic projects have been set up based on those ideas. It's called computational social science. It's bringing big data to understand humans and human society in this very quantitative way. Of course, this is not a new phenomenon. As he notes in his book titled Social Physics, the notion of using data to understand human culture is centuries old. They just didn't have the means to collect the data in any meaningful amount. And now we do. So, he initiates studies of large groups of folks, surveying 100,000 customers of a South Asian telco, for instance, overlaying their demographic information with their actual behavior, who they call, where they travel. They look at the best way of predicting purchasing behavior in a large European city. And they discover that focusing on the subject's behavior is a 300% more accurate predictor of what people will buy versus traditional marketing demographics. What you choose to do is far more predictive of your whole family of preferences than just your age, gender, job type. And if you sort of think about it, you know that. Just because you're 25 male and have a university degree does not say what sort of music you like. It does not say whether you're an introvert or extrovert. It doesn't say a lot about you. But where you spend your time does. Mixing social skills, the ability to work with other people is by far the best skill to have for maintaining your career over your lifetime. That's why we teach so much of that in university, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, sorry. Just how important is this behavioral consideration? So your social context is as important in your outcomes as your genome. Thinking about it, right? Or your social pattern of interactions is as important as your IQ. In our conversation following the lecture, I ask him, Is it harder to do stuff, research like this in the U.S.? So in my research group, I try to make sure that we have a wide variety of cultures represented because... The world is made up of very different cultures. Most of the people are not Western culture. Right. So I have to have people from all parts of the world there to help us understand, you know, what just happens to be culture and there's different ways of doing it. So that's, that's one thing. It actually is more difficult to do many things in the United States because the politics are so contentious. Right. There are many places where there's still a higher level of trust and they're willing to let you you know, investigate things, try things. Sometimes 
it's not all roses. Like, for instance, we recently did a big experiment where we were looking at Syrian refugees. And that's a very touchy thing, right? But, you know, we had the Syrian refugee groups and the UN helping us and people like that. So we felt safe to even begin to look at data like that. But somebody needs to look at this stuff because we don't know how to deal with it. And it's only through things like that that we'll come to a better understanding. But in many ways, the problem, the great divide he laments, the social disconnection, is most starkly evident in America. And there's no easy solution. You're in a room talking to a lot of really smart scientific people, some very promising students. How do we get this message beyond our own tribes? That's a really good question. I mean, I think your point is right, is, is that the, a lot of the institutions in our society have undergone elite capture, is what they talk about it. They're run by people who have degrees from Yale and MIT and places like that. Those are clearly elites. They have a different way of looking at the world because their prospects are different. You know, if you went and you just finished high school and you work in a factory, you're going to have a different outlook on life. So somehow, and I don't know how, we need to have a better interaction among these different groups, better communication in terms of things like news sources, government representation, things like that. Unfortunately, a lot of the, both left and right, have gotten uh, very shrill in the journalistic world. So they're not really trying to have a discussion at all. They're trying to motivate their base or something like that. And that's not helping. This is the context for what Pentland calls human AI. The idea of human AI is to recast the way we think about AI. It's not Determinator, it's not Skynet. How would you make an AI that's really human? And I think that the key thing with these AIs is making connections to different people, different sources of information, and tuning those so that they're most successful. So you can imagine doing that with people. You could make an AI out of people. And what it would be, it would be a a very dynamic organization that pays attention in a very sort of entrepreneurial, active way to how well it's doing and reorganizes continually. So it's, instead of having, you know, a computer with these little dumb neuron things and you change the connections to make it work, let's work with a real organization with smart people and change the connections to make it work better. In describing this during the lecture, which you can listen to in its entirety in episode 17 of this podcast, Pentland references Moneyball. This is Michael Lewis's 2003 book, and later a film starring Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, that depicts the Oakland A's decision to transform their player recruitment process by focusing on evidence-based outcomes versus more traditional stats. It's about getting things down to one number. Using stats the way we read them, we'll find value in players that nobody else can see. People are overlooked for a variety of biased reasons and perceived flaws. Age, appearance, personality. Bill James and mathematics cut straight through that. Billy, of the 20,000 notable players for us to consider, 
I believe that there is a championship team of 25 people that we could afford because everyone else in baseball undervalues them. Like an island of misfit toys. The through line is the desire to observe and measure actual human behavior and interactions. It's for this reason that Pentland is so allergic to org charts. An org chart is something that guarantees that you have a stupid organization. Yeah? Well, because you're saying the connections are static, right? For all time, Jeannie talks to Bill, and you know whether it makes any sense or not. That's your org chart, right? You need to continually adapt it. As he's observed in his various studies and work on behalf of multinational companies, it's human connections that are the main driver of innovations, ideas and opportunities. That you're definitely not taught. It's not the only thing. But in the data that we have, it's about half of the variance. It seems to be predictive. It's something that you can design policies around. In order to do that, in order to make use of that, you have to measure things. You have to measure things like, where do the people live who work in this neighborhood? What are the cultural backgrounds of the people in this startup? What are the patterns of communication in the organization? And currently, we don't do that. You need to have this commitment to be able to get this sort of detailed data about things. And you need to commit to constantly changing your organization. No more static org charts, right? You need to commit to constantly updating your organization. That's sort of the story of AI. Now, assuming you buy into this vision, there's one huge hurdle. How do we maintain our privacy and the sanctity of our personal data in a world in which we aspire to measure every possible interaction? Pentland espouses something he initiated in the mid-2000s at the World Economic Forum. He calls it the New Deal on Data. The New Deal on Data came from this sort of realization that we didn't know as a society how to deal with data. It was a new thing. It used to be that if you couldn't see somebody, they didn't exist, there was no data about them, you know, no problem. Suddenly there's this thing that's very valuable, increasingly important to be able to make things run correctly, and we don't have any norms about it. We don't have any laws about it, etc. And so... If you go back to physical property or freedoms, you know, you go back to the Magna Carta, mm. the very first time people other than the king had right. Now, it wasn't very diverse, it was just the dukes, but you know, it was a start. And over the next 800 years, people got rights to own things, to control their own body, to do things. And we need to have that same development with data. The first start is having rights over data about yourself. Now, that's different than ownership. So people say, oh, you should own your own data. Well, except that, you know, the data that I create with the bank is also created by the bank. And some of it's important that the bank hold because that's how they fight fraud and stuff like that. And there's laws to make them do that. So it's rights, not ownership. So rights mean right to have a copy of it, right to send the data where I want, right to know what happened to it, and to get value from it, not to be cut out. That's great. And now we've been building tools to do that. 
The next step is essentially political power around that. Mm -hmm. So if you think about so the U.S. back in the late 1800s, you saw these cooperative movements like the Grange mm -hmm. and later labor movements mm -hmm. and, and cooperative banks and so forth. And I think you need to do the same thing around data. There need to be data banks that are owned by the people who are members so you can push back against these big players because, you know, by yourself, you don't have a lot of chance. If you can do it with millions of other people, you can move the needle. This effort has helped give rise to things like the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, recently enacted by the EU. You know, the reason why lots of websites are asking you to confirm their use of cookies? He thinks it's a good start. I was there the night that they put the final draft together, and the people that were doing it were really upset because in Europe, countries can add clauses without review at the end, and they'd added all this craziness. But the core, that you have to know what's happening to your data, you have to give permission for its use, you can revoke it, you can get a copy and give it to someone else, that's solid. And it's changing the way people do business. It's going to take a while. They need to like work it out. But we need something like that in this country, too. What that does is that makes it possible for groups of people to band together and cooperatively own their own data, have copies of their data, negotiate as a group, and really make a difference. So, a lot of grand themes. Human-based AI, the New Deal on data, etc. All invoked in the service of creating a more equitable society. One that thrives based on a diversity of connections. As this takes shape, it can feel overwhelming to contemplate what our role as individuals may be. One member of the audience asks, how do you see, even if you have collected data, that it, it almost looks like modern society is taking away that common communication that you used to have, walking up to the post office, you never go to the post office anymore. So how do you see the, that kind of like diverse connections from getting added into your social network groups that wouldn't happen today because of our isolation based on technology? He has an answer for that, too. It turns out that about 50% of the segregation between different income classes is the result of what you might call micro-choices. You know, you're there on the street and you go to the Dunkin' Donuts or the Starbucks. Starbucks has a very different demographic than Dunkin' Donuts. That small choice makes a big difference. It's almost 50% of the variance in terms of the segregation of our society mm. on the physical plane. Clearly a lot more to unpack here. To hear how Pentland lays it out in the full lecture and what remedies he proposes, be sure and check out episode 17, the very next show in this feed. For more information about the topics discussed today, please check our show notes. And if you like this episode of Future Human, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts. It helps new people find the show. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smolens, for Audiation.fm. It was recorded and mixed at The Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Additional production by Kelly Kramer. Audiation.